This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week we're talking about power. We've talked about power before here. Actually, we talk about power all the time here. Just not as explicitly as we do in this week's conversation. But power, seeking it, discovering it, fighting for it, and defending it, that's the active element in American politics and an animating force in American culture, though it isn't always so apparent. There are times in American history where the pervading power dynamic is taken for granted by most people. Now is not one of those times. The crises of the last few years, along with the spread of new technologies, have disrupted the status quo and brought power struggles of all sorts out into the open. Those who for so long have held so little power in this country, due to their race, their gender, or their immigration status, they're now staking a claim to some of that power. And these struggles are shaping our politics in real ways, which is to say that they are touching our lives in individual ways. This week's guest is one of the people who is pushing for a rebalancing of power in the United States, especially when it comes to black Americans. Alicia Garza is the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter Global Network and the principal of the Black Futures Lab. She also heads the Black to the Future Action Fund and is Director of Strategy and Partnerships at the National Domestic Workers Alliance. There's more. She's the host of the podcast Lady Don't Take No and the author of the book The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. So, yeah, she's very, very busy, but she did have time to stop by the Crosscut Festival this past May and talk with Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large for the 19th, about the ongoing power shift in this country and the forces pressing to slow or even reverse that shift. This conversation and all other conversations on the social justice track of the 2021 Crosscut Festival was sponsored by Waldron, which would like to share the following message. Waldron helps organizations and people to reach their full potential, guiding human-centered journeys to organizational and professional success with courage, compassion, and discretion. Clients seek out Waldron when their brands are on the line for impactful board consulting, organization and leadership development, executive coaching, career transition, and career management. Waldron is proud to support Crosscut, a forum for truth and dialogue that increases knowledge, understanding, and compassionate participation. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. So Alicia, it's so great to be with you today. And thank you for being here because we have a lot to discuss. Yes, we do. It's great to be here with you. And thank you to the Crosscut Festival for having us. I've been looking forward to this all week, Erin. So let's get in. Yeah, let's get into it. I mean, I want to start by asking you about one area of power that I know that you've been focused on in the past year, and that's the 2020 election and this new administration that's taking shape. Uh, which we recently talked about when I wrote about Vice President Kamala Harris and the Biden-Harris administration's first 100 days. So I'm wondering if you can share with our audience your assessment of how the administration is doing so far on the priorities that voters have told you that they care about and what you see as the work ahead. 
Yeah, well, you know, look, I, I have to be honest here. Uh, what we are in is a very unique moment where there is more possible in the next four years than there has been in the last 12. And that means that this administration is really doing a great job addressing the mandate that pushed them over the finish line and into the White House, a mandate around racial justice, a mandate around economic justice, a mandate around COVID-19 relief and recovery, a mandate around climate justice, and a mandate around addressing the uh, landscape that exists now in this country that has actually always existed, but it's certainly become sharpened and it's it's come out into the light. And I think on most of those issues, they're doing an excellent job when it comes to, you know, moving $400 billion uh, for care infrastructure, right? We're still waiting for that bill to, to move through the Senate, but certainly it's an important indication of where this administration stands, not just on jobs in the economy, but on women and women of color and black women who, you know, as you know, Aaron, have been literally pushed out uh, of, of, of many sectors. In December, I think it was black women, more than 100,000 black women were permanently displaced from the economy. And so these are yeah. important advances. Now, at the same time, I did listen to the uh, the speech that Joe Biden gave. I love that he, you know, told transgender citizens in this country that he is their president and that he is behind this community. And I, I, one thing that I didn't love, and I'll just be 100% honest, I don't think they're as strong on racial justice as I would want them to be. And mm -hmm. frankly, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that for so many of us in this country, we see racism as, a, as an interpersonal problem. We see it as a, a function of what happens when people are mean to each other. But in fact, racism is baked into every system, every process, every structure that upholds this nation. And uh, as the country has become more visibly polarized, I think we do have to start coming up with answers and solutions to this enduring challenge. And it's not enough to try to kind of talk out of both sides of your mouth. For example, with policing, saying things mm -hmm. like, you know, <laughs> we can't have people being murdered in the streets, but also police are good people. That's actually not the issue. The issue is, right, that the, the, the processes by which police should be held accountable don't exist. And the other thing that doesn't exist is racial justice inside of our criminal system. And so those are the places that we have to really dig in and stop trying to make everybody happy. These are big changes that, has, that have to be made and they are bold marks that have to be placed on this moment in history. So generally doing a great job, but I definitely think more needs to be done around racial justice, especially in the context of the growing white nationalist crisis that we have in this country. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I feel like, you know, with, with kind of the dual pandemics of, of systemic racism and coronavirus converging last year, right? Like, I feel like a lot of voters really came to understand the impact of policy on their daily reality in so many ways. And I wonder if that was something that you feel like you saw too, not just in the 2020 election, but as we now transition to governing right, and what, and what power means for our electorate, for uh, the folks that, that got a lot of these people into office, not just the president and the vice president, but really just elected officials uh, from the very highest level all the way down to their local government, understanding the impact of those folks and, and their daily lives and, and really um, their role, uh, their civic role, uh, you know, to continue to hold these folks accountable now that they have been elected. 
Absolutely. Well, look, I mean, in my conversations with Black voters across the nation, we talked to uh, more than 2 million Black voters leading up to this past election cycle mm -hmm. and certainly the, the runoffs in January. And one of the things that was very apparent is that more people became civically engaged this year than had been prior. And it had everything to do with the sharpening crises that you talked about, this, the crises of systemic racism that was becoming more apparent to more people the crises of the pandemic or the panorama or whatever you want to call it these days. And also there were crises before the crisis of Donald Trump, which is, you know, I feel blasphemous for even saying his name, but we have to keep talking about the fact that um, this last four years really um, drove the acceleration of these crises that then culminated, mm -hmm. right, in one of the most important years uh, in my generation, in my lifetime. I found in my conversations with people that because they felt uh, the, the, the sharpening of these crises, they also wanted to deeply understand what they could do about it. And not just in voting, right? But they wanted to understand how they could shift the decisions that people were making on their behalf. And what it made me realize, Erin, is that for so many of us, we are so distant from the process of governance. Yeah. We are distant from the process of making laws. A lot of us don't even know how government works, right? Yeah. So it's 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 a it's why my organization exists, right? It's why I built the Black Futures Lab. It's why I built yeah. the Black to the Future Action Fund because I don't believe we can be powerful in politics if we're not a part of them. And for black communities in particular, we're always being asked to come to the table and save the country from, you know, pending doom. But yet when it comes to policies and practices that improve our lives, uh, we're getting the short end of the stick here. And I, I, you know, I'm preaching to the choir, but it's a big deal that a lot of the black voters that we talked to in this last cycle said, yes, I'm definitely gonna vote. But if you ask people, you know, do you get anything out of voting? They can't tell you what they get. So that's a crisis that's that's yeah. looming, right? And, uh, you know, and then when we talk about movements, I think, you know, we did see social movements take up the mantle and the banner of really shaping electoral organizing in this last election cycle. And that was important, not just because of the crises that was looming, but it's an important development and advancement in social movements in general. You know, lots of people think about social movements as being outside of the process of governance by nature. And in some ways that's true, but I think in the most kind of successful uh, movements that we've seen around the world, right? It's been the combination of governance on the inside, right? Mm -hmm. And also continuing to build and expand power on the outside and then figuring out how you bring those things together into some kind of coherent whole. And we need to get to that point as well, right? We can no longer be passive observers uh, to the decisions that are being made about us without us every single day. We've got to start looking at how we change the rules permanently to ensure that people don't get left out and left behind. I think yesterday I saw something about, you know, it's more than 350 bills to restrict voter participation, right? In like yeah. 48 states, it's insane. And so, you know, democracy is certainly in crisis. And if democracy is in crisis, governance becomes more more distant and more fleeting. So we've got to bring those two those two issues together. And um, I'm so proud of my friends like Latasha Brown, who are killing it with Black Voters Matter, making sure that we still have the right and the ability to vote and fighting these voter suppression laws. But I think it's, it's a natural extension of um, the uprisings that we saw uh, this past summer. And I think we all need to see it that way.
Yeah, and and that that work continues. You know, the reckoning uh, with with many institutions, including my own industry uh, of, of journalism and media. Uh, you know, the, the reckoning is ongoing, and and we're just kind of really at the beginning of that work in, right. in so many ways across so many aspects of our society, right? But uh, I want I want to circle back to something uh, that you were that you were starting to talk about, uh, and something that we talk about a lot. And I don't want to spoil it, uh, you know, for your book for people who may be watching. Though I encourage everybody to read it. Uh, but so much of what you do is really not just about your own power as an organizer, but in really getting people, particularly women and marginalized folks in our country, to realize their power, right? Um, but a theme that I've written about uh, a lot in this past year that I'm continuing to write about this year is uh, the backlash to that power, right? Which you have, you know, kind of alluded to that we are seeing unfold in these uh, culture wars that continue to kind of dominate Republican politics in particular. So what can you say about the purpose really of these culture fights and how they attempt to undermine folks who are seeking to gain power and agency in, in our democracy? Yeah, it's so important for us to understand this and not, again, make the same mistake that I think we made that allowed uh, Donald Trump to become president, which is that we just wrote Republicans off as um, being unhinged. And in fact, it has nothing to do with their mental health, right? And it has everything to do with their political agenda that they are trying to move. And when they cannot move it through state legislatures, when they cannot move it through Congress, what they do is they move it through hearts and minds. And then that creates the conditions for state legislatures to move bills and for Congress mm -hmm. to move bills that severely restrict and curtail the rights of Americans and people around the world. You know, it's interesting. When I was growing up, the culture wars were all centered around women's bodies. It was all centered around um, sexuality and morality. There was, a, you know, a panic about teen pregnancy being an epidemic, which it really wasn't, but it was certainly uh, a, a way, right, to start to introduce um, using panic and fear and anxiety uh, these bills that were that were things like the global gag rule, right, which prohibited federal that, dollars going to. Oh, go ahead. That wasn't a, that wasn't a coincidence either, right? Like you know, that was parallel to kind of the the rise of, of women, right? Of gender, um, you know, That's being really at the forefront of the conversation as as women and and uh, and and queer folks were starting to get power, right? We're starting to realize and recognize their agency. Uh, that was the backlash to to that movement. That's absolutely or the emergency, right. Right? right? Yeah, yeah. But course. now, a lot, so, so now you see they're around race, right. right? I mean, like you think about obviously this this war on voting, which you know is not a real thing as we know, uh, but also you know the 1619 project, which is now two years old, uh, that that continues right. to be resurrected and 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 fought about, uh, though you know it just is is stating very plainly that you know we need to talk about the origins of this country, the actual origins of this country uh, with the in, in arrival of the, in, you know, the first enslaved people to, uh, to this country, um, you know, but that, that is something that, that, um, you know, folks feel the need to push back on that history uh, that is a very important part of, of our American story, uh, you know, but to, you know, what, what that says about our democracy, I think, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of all of that is what you're, you're talking about. That's right. I mean, and so when you look at the culture wars of today, right, and you wonder why are they obsessed with um, transgender people playing sports or why are they obsessed with, you know, medical access for, for transgender communities? Why are we obsessed with Colin Kaepernick taking a knee and wokeness culture and cancel culture, right? 
where they're obsessed with it because this movement has been so successful in changing hearts and minds around not only the presence and existence of systemic racism, right, but also changing hearts and minds around who deserves to have power in this country and really trying to break up the concentration of power. And um, I think what we need to expect over the next couple of years is that those culture wars are going to get more pronounced. And I think that they will continue to start to attack uh, uh, educational institutions, curriculum, uh, any place where we're shaping and forming ideas. They'll also start to um, start to try to attack public services and who can and can't receive them. We see this uh, certainly around the issues of immigration. And now I think we're starting to see it around gender and around sexuality. And so, um, you know, we got to keep our eyes on the prize here and understand that culture and policy really do go hand in hand. Yeah. And for folks who I, I think try to there are folks who try to minimize these these culture wars as, as just like, you know, a distraction, right? As opposed to really potentially being a destructive force in our democracy. And and I, and I wonder what you say to people who, um, you know, I, I guess kind of to your point, um, were dismissing Republicans as, as, you know, crazy or fringe, like, you know, many millions of people uh, you know, are in support of, of, of a lot of, of these ideas and theories and, and, and voted for uh, people who espouse these, these ideas and theories in the last election. That's right. And, you know, look, I'll be honest with you. It's not just white people. It's also in communities of color. It's in black communities. It's in immigrant communities. And, you know, the, the Republican Party of today is not the Republican Party of the 1990s. And in fact, they're so much more extreme that I don't even know that we can call them Republicans anymore. I almost long for the 90s Republican over the Republican of today. But I will say this, Aaron, you know, if we're not careful and we're not mindful about uh, the ways that these things are intersecting, um, we are not just going to get left behind, right? But we're going to get left out completely. And I think what we've learned over the last four years is that we cannot underestimate the power of misinformation and disinformation. And we also can't underestimate their strategy to try to break up the coalitions and alliances that we've built that have made us so powerful and are allowing us to change the rules and allowing us to begin to start being the people who are making the rules. It's because of those alliances that we have the first you know, indigenous woman ever to, to oversee the Department of the Interior. It's because of those alliances that we see more women of color than have ever been in the United States Congress, right? Yeah. And then we also see it in state houses and municipalities across the country with black mayors proliferating all over the place that are young and have and mostly progressive minded. So they have a strategy, right, to counter our power. And we should certainly see that as a threat, but also as an opportunity to get stronger, to get bigger and to get bolder, because we are definitely winning and history is on our side. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the misinformation, disinformation piece of, of the culture war, and and there are certainly, I, I think, a, a few big examples of that that, that we should talk about. One, uh, you know, this vaccine hesitancy piece uh, outside of communities of color, which obviously have had a historic reason to to be skeptical, you know, about getting vaccinated. But but there is also, you know, kind of an anti-vax, uh, you know, QAnon, what have you, movement that that uh, you know is is uh, slowing down. Uh, vaccine, uh, our vaccine progress uh, in, in conservative uh, evangelical circles, if you will. Uh, you know, you also have, um, 
you know, the big lie, certainly the, the rigged election uh, lie that, that we know is not real. Our own government has declared that the 2020 election was the most safe and secure that, that our country uh, had ever had. Um, you know, I wonder what you, yeah, I mean, talk to me about how, I mean, these, these things are, are literally dangerous. Uh, the January 6th insurrection, that was violent, that was deadly, right? Uh, and so just, you know, working in a newsroom name for the 19th Amendment, I've just been thinking a lot about, you know, misinformation, the big lie, its impact on our electorate. I mean, the reality is that this is just part of an even bigger, older lie in this country, right? That's what you're kind of talking about. Um, and I just wonder if you can explain to our audience kind of why this bigger lie is, is a real threat to our democracy and, and why certain Americans are still so invested in telling it and what people who are concerned about the bigger lie, what, what what they can do about it. Sure. Well, look, I talk about this a lot in my book. It's, it's really about um, power versus empowerment. And I, I think that, frankly, um, some of this push around misinformation and disinformation is always intended uh, to keep power as it is and to maintain and uh, extend the status quo for as long as possible. And as this country's demographics change, as this country's values change, at least the people within it, right, it forces uh, a contradiction and it forces America, right, to either reaffirm its values and play them out in practice or uh, be explicit that it was all kind of a, a big mess from the beginning. And mm -hmm. one of the things I say in my book, Erin, is that you know, we as Americans have to understand that America itself is powered by amnesia. We are there. America could not exist if we were not invested in the project of forgetting the project of forgetting the uh, the genocide of indigenous people, the attempted genocide of indigenous people in this country, uh, the 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 enslavement uh, of black people in this country. Uh, you know, the work programs uh, of Latinx people in this country, the um, exclusion acts of Asian people in this country, right? Um, and, and the atrocities, right, that have been experienced by every single person who has ever been designated as other in the name of America. And until we begin to allow ourselves to remember, Aaron, we're not going to be able to move forward in any kind of way. If every two years we're having a new awakening around does racism exist, do we ever get to the point right where we actually get to start untying no, it and undoing no. it? And so I, I just want people to understand that, again, um, the way for us to move forward together, right, is um, not to stick our heads in the sand and say, well, that was then and this is now. It is to mm -hmm. remember the impacts of all of the atrocities that have happened in the name of this country so that they cannot be repeated again, so that we can see the seeds of them, we can continue to see the impacts of them, and so that we can consistently say, we are not about that, we are about this instead. And, you know, I, I think for us, for a lot of us, we're trying to figure out what's next and what is going to be necessary for this administration to be successful, for us to not retract or devolve back into the mess and the cesspool that we were in not even six months ago, right, mm -hmm. is to commit to ourselves that we will never forget, that we will not turn away from the things that are hard, that we won't get bound up in the shame, right, of the atrocities themselves, 
but that will actually be driven by our values in such a way um, where we're courageous enough, right, to stand up to uh, that monster that keeps trying to rear its ugly head and say, well, don't worry about that. That was then and this is now. So uh, just for concrete steps, I think we have to stay focused. I think we have to stay present. I think we have to stay connected. And I think that we have to continue to push this window wider uh, and wider. Otherwise, Aaron, I will tell you, um, if we have more years, which I think we do, uh, thanks to black voters, <laughs> if we have more years on this planet, um, I don't think any of us wants to look back and say, gosh, we really wasted that opportunity. And now we have, you know, the 2.0 version of what we had four years ago. And they actually figured out how not to get unelected, but they figured out how to stay in power for much longer, uh, whether we wanted them to or not. That's what we're trying to avoid here. And the way we can do that is by staying engaged and staying connected and remembering. Absolutely. I wonder if, because you've encountered so many people who, you know, were creative and overcame the challenges of the pandemic to find their power in this past year. I wonder if there is um, a group of people in particular, uh, an organization that, that you really just saw standing up and coming into their power in this past year that, that you could talk about with our audience who uh, may frankly be wanting to see kind of an example of, of what you're talking about in action uh, in, in, in our democracy right now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there were so many, um, but I'm going to highlight uh, two. Um, so I, we all talk about Black Voters Matter, but I think we really need to talk about Black Voters Matter moving millions of dollars to communities that are being left out and left behind so that they could be powerful in the political process. Um, you know, and right, so that they could be prepared to defend their victories. Um, and so that is an organization I think you should support. Absolutely. Uh, we all know Latasha Brown, right? But you also need to know Cliff. You also need to know uh, uh, Ms. Donna. There's so many incredible organizers there that literally uh, uh, help to uh, not just capture the hearts and minds of, of people around what was possible in elections, uh, but also uh, are, are creating the kinds of networks and fabric that is going to keep this democracy alive. So uh, definitely check them out. And then there's an organization that I think people don't hear about as much, and it's called the Black Male Voter Project. And I just yeah. remember in the last season, I was so scared um, about the ways in which black male voters were being used as wedges. And I was really grateful for this organization because they took that challenge on head on and said, well, actually, if we stop demonizing black men in the political process, maybe black men, will, maybe you can trust us to like do what we know how to do. Uh, there was lots of conversation about how black men broke off and voted for Trump, but actually uh, the majority of black men who voted, right, voted with the, uh, the segment of the country that said, there is a better way and there's a better path. Now, at the same time, what I love about this organization is that they are also paying attention to making sure that our communities get something out of politics, that we don't just keep going to people every four years and being like, oh, we know we said that last time, but, and I know you didn't really feel anything in your pocket or in your community or in your home, yeah. your life didn't change, but keep voting. <laughs> Right. And so what I love about them is that they are really building infrastructure and in communities 
for black men to feel like they can be a part of the political process and actually get something out of it. So uh, those are two organizations I would shout out, but there's so many more like the National Domestic Workers Alliance, who is been fighting for a decade for the recognition of the people who care for the people that we care for the most. This $400 billion. Yeah, this $400 billion in care infrastructure um, it is incredible. And to have it introduced in an infrastructure bill just shows the power of this movement and this organizing led by the fearless Ai-jen Poo, who I have the the honor and pleasure of working with every day and have for almost the last decade. Uh, there's a ton of organizations out there that you should support, but those are three that I will highlight that um, are really working to put this country back together again, but also transform it so we never get back here again. We'll be back with more after this. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Okay, now for everyone here for the live interview today, we're going to welcome Alicia back on for a few minutes of audience questions. Ready, Alicia? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right, let's jump into these. Oh, yes. Well, here we go. Uh, first question. I know you'll <laughs> like this one. Do you think the term defund the police is misunderstood? No, I don't. I think that it is um, really clear. <laughs> what I think is that um, there are people who willfully want to not understand it. And instead of not understanding it, they just don't agree with it. And that's okay. I prefer people saying, I don't agree, as opposed to, I don't understand. Defund is not um, confusing in any sort of way. I mean, when you think about fund, it means to invest in or give money. And then when you put that little qualifier at the beginning that says D, it means to take it away. Detach, right, means to unattach. Defund means to stop putting money into something. And so I, I just, I want us to, again, just be honest about where we stand in this moment in time. And I also want to challenge us to ask ourselves, what is it that we think is going to be necessary uh, to hold police accountable when they commit crimes in our communities? In the last two weeks, there have been over a dozen police murders that we've heard about. Uh, and we yeah. continue to invest billions of dollars into law enforcement um, to try to address public safety, but our communities are not safer. So at what point do we say we have to do something different? Uh, there's a lot of positions on this question. You know, some people are on the position of we don't need police at all. Other people are saying, well, we need to actually reinvest in our communities because a lot of the resources that we use for military grade weapons and massive tanks to control protests of 100 people um, are actually better used uh, refunding our schools that have been stripped of infrastructure and funding. It's better used building affordable housing for the millions of people who are living on the streets, not just because of the pandemic, but we're uh, increasingly doing so because of the lack of available and affordable housing. Uh, we need to be investing resources, right, in things that actually keep people safe, like 
being able to have access to employment, uh, being able to join a union so that you're not being uh, exploited by an employer, uh, being able to have access to affordable health care, right? These are things that yeah. we can invest in that help keep communities safe. And uh, I think when we start to look at what our priorities are here, uh, defund doesn't become such a controversial conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got uh, another uh, policing related question. Uh, somebody is asking how you feel about the Derek Chauvin verdict and your thoughts on the future of policing. I would add to that, uh, you know, what you think the prospects are for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And if you think that that uh, is a good start, does it go far enough to address uh, these systemic issues? Hmm. Um, what I think about the Derek Chauvin verdict, uh, I, I think it's it's important uh, in the sense for me, honestly, and, and I, a lot of us were talking about this, I felt, um, like finally somebody acknowledged that this happens in our communities. You mm -hmm. know, in my lifetime, um, there haven't been guilty verdicts. So that's important. At the same time, a verdict is not justice. It is not, um, it is not justice. It's a measure of punishment, uh, which for a lot of people is important, especially when there's been the absence of punishment uh, in relationship to uh, crimes that get committed in our communities by police. Now, with that being said, um, because it is such an aberration, I want more. I want more. I want to better understand, not through the lens of training or things like that, and what are we going to do about the crisis of policing in this country? What do I think about the legislation that's out there right now, justice and policing? Um, it's an important step. I mean, ending qualified immunity is important. And I don't believe that you can set up the police to police themselves. And I don't think that it's a smart idea at this stage in the game to keep investing money into a, a, a system and a set of processes that have been shown to not work for their designated mm -hmm. outcome. So uh, that's how I feel about that. I have a lot of respect and love for the lawmakers that are trying to push this forward, trying to get anything done around this. And so we got to give them props like, uh, you know, uh, Representative Karen Bass, right, and others. And I want us to go farther. Like I said, there's so much more possible in this next four years than has been in the last decade. Let's make the most of that. And let's really take this issue on because honestly, this isn't new, right? We're talking about policing a lot as if, you know, we just realized, right? Police kill people, <laughs> but police have been killing people for a very long time. So uh, I want this to be our generation's stamp on the future that we took on this problem with rigor um, and ending qualified immunity is part of it, making sure that uh, there are consequences, right? When, when police commit crimes in our communities, that's part of it. But how do we also do preventative work, right? So that more people stay alive and that we're not uh, uh, building these kinds of policies off the backs of dead black bodies. That's, that's what I really long for there. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I want to also ask you kind of about the court of public opinion, because, uh, you know, when, uh, you know, you helped to start the Black Lives Matter movement, um, certainly the, the feelings and the sentiment around even the statement Black Lives Matter was so different than I feel like where we are today. Uh, and so this question is asking about last summer's protest following the murder of George Floyd and how that put the Black Lives Matter movement at the forefront of America's consciousness in a different way, certainly a lot more diverse 
uh, folks that we saw uh, in the streets protesting uh, the unrelenting killing of, of Black people, even in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, but you also had opportunists kind of making the most out of clouding the agenda, um, you know, casting blame on Black Lives Matter for, you know, rioting and looting and wanting to focus on those kinds of things. So the question that uh, this person is asking is that on the whole, do you feel that um, all the attention uh, around uh, uh, Black Lives Matter has been a net gain for the movement for Black Lives? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, yes and no. Uh, mm. On the one hand, you know, um, the symbolism of Black Lives Matter is everywhere now. And that's important. You know, I got an email from somebody in Germany that said, you know, that their daughter is involved in Black Lives Matter. And they really wanted to kind of have a conversation about the evolution of this movement. And, you know, where do we see things going from here? And, you know, I, I think it's important, right? We're now a part of the DNA of the globe, right? And so that is a massive shift that I feel so grateful to be like the tiniest part of. And at the same time, the level of backlash that this movement has received from, you know, uh, uh, intentionally, you know, being uh, slandered either as a group or as individuals, uh, I think really shows you the power of this movement. Right. So um, in terms of net gain, right, um, I, I think that this movement has, you know, irrevocably changed this country and changed this world. And it is why these attacks are so strong. I was attacked several times last year. You know, I was called a, a communist, a queen pin, that I'm building an empire to try to take over the United States for communist China. I mean, there was like a lot of stuff going on in that. Are, are, you, are you laughing but... at the empire right now? Are you, you laughing at the mean, Empire? I, I, liked, I liked the queen pin thing, but I was like, you guys are giving me a lot of credit that I actually have not earned yet. Um, so there was that, you know, my sister Patrice was, was certainly attacked just a few weeks ago in really devastating ways and had her address put online. She was doxxed. I mean, there was like a lot of stuff going on there. Um, and this, and you know, when we're talking about culture wars too, we should just keep in mind that the delegitimization de of black movements um, has always been a part of the culture war of this country. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly no less uh, in relationship to Black Lives Matter. With that being said, um, you know, the, the, the loss here, I think sometimes is, um, you know, when protests die down, um, people go home and they get comfortable again. And I want to say to each of us, right, that there will be many more moments of crisis. And um, I think we need to abandon this idea of like going back to normal. The Derek Chauvin verdict um, doesn't bring us back to normal, right? It's literally right. an aberration in a much larger pattern uh, of, of, of anti-Black racism and, and murder. So uh, for me, yes, net gain mostly. Um, but there are some some unfortunate losses, and um, some of that has to do with credibility. Some of that has to do with lives, um, and some of it has to do with opportunity. And I would say the thing that's that's most present there is the loss of opportunity in really moving innovative, bold policy to make Black Lives Matter not just in symbol but as substance. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned policy. Uh, that takes us into our next question. And we talked in our conversation just about what is ahead for the administration. This question, what do you see or wish that you saw more of 
uh, with regard to the cabinet heads and people like Susan Rice, for example, as head of domestic policy in terms of advocating or even initiating ideas and action uh, versus everything coming straight from the White House? Mm. Look, I mean, the way I feel about this, honestly, is that I think everybody's doing the best that they can with what they got. And when I think about how we even got here, right, I mean, we had this man in the White House and he wasn't even willing to do a transition process. So literally people walked in on day one when they should have been in like, you know, 30 days or 60 days before, like learning the ropes and figuring it all out. So, you know, in terms of what's ideal, none of that stuff was ideal. Um, with that being said, uh, we have a government that is set up um, in such a way where um, we're not actually getting the best and the brightest of what this country has to offer. And that's because the design of the government itself, right? Was it was designed for white propertyed, meaning land and slaves, um, men, right? And you couldn't even get elected into this government without having those assets and, and assets being people and assets being land. Uh, so for me, I don't have high expectations in that way in the, exist, in the way that things exist right now. I think that um, the, the existing setup is stretching probably about as much as it can before you start to change the rules for how it works. And I think ultimately, if what you're pointing to is how do we change the rules for how it works, that's a conversation I'm super interested in. But right now I'm kind of feeling like folks are doing what they can do in what they've got to work with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we've got time for one more, and this is uh, a good one that, and, and honestly, one that I did not think we'd be talking about in the 2020 election cycle, something that I didn't know that we'd be talking about with this new administration. Question, do you think that reparations are something that we should pursue? Totally. Well, that was efficient. <laughs> do you want to tell people why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes, and um, reparations of the in the form of um, um, resources, right? But also reparations in the form of changed rules and changed behaviors. Um, so it, it's a bigger conversation, but I think um, I'm happy to see some of the progress that's been made. But it should be a much more robust conversation, and it should include checks, but it should also include right um, changed rules, changed behavior, changed policy. Yeah. Well, reparations, yes, says Alicia Garza. Uh, unfortunately, now we're really out of time, but thank you so much, Alicia, for a great conversation. I'm sorry that it's on a Zoom screen and not in person, but we're vaccinated, so hopefully this will happen soon. It was lovely to be here with you. Thank you so much, and thank you to the Crosscut Festival for having us. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Alicia and Aaron for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Seth Halloran. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Ann Krasnovich and Mo Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to Crosscut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 
for the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com donate. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.